Welcome into the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering with you. And Rick, we haven't recorded in a while. A lot has happened since the last time you and I talked and have done a podcast. Xavier sits at 10-3 and right now. They're 2-0 in the Big East, open with wins over Georgetown and Seton Hall. We also have not podcasted since the IARP ruled in their Sean Miller, Arizona case decision. So we'll get into all of that and more here in this episode. Rick, great to talk to you. Just back from Florida in time before this winter storm, the trip down to Florida Atlantic with NKU. But good to have you back here and, and talk some Xavier basketball. So let's get right into it. Xavier beats Georgetown on the road in D.C. last Friday night to open up Big East play. They score over 100 points for just the second time since joining the Big East Conference. The other time was back in 2018. Coincidentally, the last time that Xavier beat Seton Hall at home, that was the last time and the only other time that Xavier went over the century mark in Big East play. Xavier scores 102 points, but they allow 89. And Sean Miller talked after the game about how he was concerned that in a game where you score 102 points, you shouldn't be looking up and hoping that you're going to win the game. But that was the situation that Xavier found themselves in in the district last week. Xavier does win by 13, but uh, Rick, some cause to be concerned with the defense over a feisty Georgetown team. What were your overall thoughts from that game? Well, yeah, I mean, you laid it out pretty well there. When you score 102 in a Big East game, got to be pretty excited about the way your offense is rolling. And this team is seventh in the country right now in offensive efficiency, according to Ken Palm, which suggests that they are elite on that end of the floor. And I talked about this with Richard Skinner tonight on the Skinny Podcast. In some regards, when a team's only played their non-conference schedule, and okay, you're two games into the Big East now, but one of them is Georgetown, you might be able to look at that and say, well, how much does it mean? Is there enough sample size? What have you? But like, The competition that Xavier has played this year already in their non-conference schedule, this offensive efficiency number is real. I'm not saying it'll stay in the top 10 the entire season, but it's a real number at this point. Like we have enough evidence. They've played against quality competition. It's not like they were a super efficient team last year. So they were getting the benefit of the doubt from last year's results still being baked into the Ken Palm system. They are legit on the offensive end at this point. I think they've made that clear. 102 points is absurd, regardless of how bad Georgetown is. It's just crazy to score that much in a Big East game. And I think when I look at the offense and why they are functioning at such a high level, we've talked a lot about the big men and all the high lows and making sure guys are taking the right shots. And all of that stuff is important, and it's definitely played a big part. But the thing that stands out to me more than anything else And this Georgetown game was a perfect example of it. Colby Jones and Sule Boom are passing the ball and taking care of the ball at such a high level for this team. Those two in this game combined to go for 15 assists and two turnovers. When you have two of your best playmakers and the two guys that have the ball in their hands the most probably throughout the course of the game, not turning it over at all like that, And then making all these plays for their teammates and passing it and moving it well, playing unselfishly, you're going to have a damn good offense. Yeah, there were stats all over the place for Sule Boom in that Georgetown game that made your eyes just pop out of their sockets. I mean, 28 points, six of nine from three, seven rebounds, seven assists, and he gets four of Xavier's six steals in the game. And again, just over and over, we can't hammer home the point enough where Xavier keeps looking for that that rock, that stability, and he goes out and does a performance like that in a Big East opener and just inspires 
even more confidence than Xavier fans already had in him at that point and the coaching staff too. I've said it so many times. I mean, it's just been <laughs> ridiculous to start this yeah. year, and, and he really hasn't slowed down. We'll talk about the Seton Hall game in a little bit where he wasn't quite as outrageously good, but uh, I mean, he's putting his name in contention with the top point guards in the conference right now. Yeah, so let's let's look at this Georgetown game, too, from a defensive perspective, Rick. You look at Georgetown, they're 5-8 and eight now on the season. They haven't beaten a high-major team since last year on December 11th against Syracuse. So it's been over a calendar year since Georgetown has beaten a team that, um, you know, a high-major power six team. They're 0-2 in conference play, but they played a tight one against UConn the other night on Tuesday. UConn ended up winning by double digits, but if you got a chance to watch the game, Georgetown had it right there, right up until the end. They were, I think, within a point with about six minutes to go. Might, might have had the lead right around that six-minute mark um, before UConn pulled away in the end. This, this is a Georgetown team. I said it a few minutes ago. Feisty. At least shows some spirit, shows some effort, shows some some tenacity that maybe they didn't last year. And, and you pick off a win here or there. I don't think this Georgetown team will go winless just with the way they've shown in the last couple of games uh, in Big East play. But still going on the road in an environment that is as dead as it was at Capital One and Arena for Xavier playing against a Georgetown team like that and not having a letdown game. Uh, did you see anything from Georgetown offensively that they were doing against Xavier? defense that gave you cause for concern well it's nothing new that's for certain but what they what georgetown has and why they can make some games interesting even against the better teams in the conferences they have a couple of really good individual talents on the offensive end primo spears is a very talented scorer he's very quick hard to guard one-on-one off the dribble and he can make some pretty tough shots he's i don't know how consistent of a shooter he's going to be over the course of the entire season but because he's going to take some really tough ones and, and that'll probably drag down his percentages, but he is, he makes tough ones one-on-one off the dribble in isolation. And then Brandon Murray is the same way. He's a really good isolation scorer. So those guys play off of ball screens a lot, but they can also just beat you one-on-one and Primo Spears with his quickness can attack you on a straight line drive. Those are the types of things that have given Xavier trouble one-on-one matchups where they just don't have enough length and athleticism on the perimeter when they start at least two and probably three guys that you would consider minus defenders. And honestly, Jack Nungy is getting exposed a decent amount this year too on the defensive end. This game was a good example of that. Uh, Cutis Wahab for Georgetown finished with 16 points in this one, seven boards, and he was seven of 10 from the floor. There wasn't much resistance when he was catching the ball in the post. And part of that is because Xavier's doing a good job of doing early work and making him catch it farther away from the basket. But then also one-on-one, he was going to work in the post against Xavier's big men. So that's something that's been an issue for this team at times throughout this year. I thought we talked about it in the UC game with Victor Locken, and there's been some other examples against really high level players, but I don't think Wahab is on the same level of some of those earlier guys like Trace Jackson Davis that Xavier faced. And uh, same thing with Victor Locken. I don't think he's quite at that level. So seeing those two guys play really well, I think kind of tells you that Xavier's post defense hasn't been very good either. And I think Jack Nungy has struggled a bit this year. So those are the things that I really saw. And I, if you read the matchups going into that game, I mentioned like Georgetown has a couple of dudes that are going to give Xavier trouble with the things Xavier struggles with. 
at the end of the day, though, Georgetown is just so bad at playing team defense, <laughs> and they're so bad at defensive rebounding because they all chase so many block shots and they're always out of position that you knew they weren't going to end up beating Xavier. And, and that's how you're going to feel in a lot of these Big East games. But I do think they'll find a way to win at least one or two this year. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Xavier beats Georgetown and then comes back this week to play Seton Hall at home in their conference home opener. Xavier hadn't beaten Seton Hall at home since Valentine's Day all the way back in 2018 when Chris Mack was the coach. And I thought it was interesting listening to Sean and, and the players, too, in the postgame press conference. A lot of times you hear the team. Sometimes they'll acknowledge those things. Sometimes they'll say, no, it's it's just another game. But Sean made it very clear that they acknowledged it. They talked about it. They said, hey, look, this is a team we haven't beaten here in a while. And it's important. Adam Baum talked about it with me on, on the rebound rundown the other day, where if you're going to pride yourself on having a home court like this at Cintas in front of your home fans, that you got to impose your will against a team like this, especially in a Big East opener, a Seton Hall team that over the last few years has been good, but isn't the Seton Hall of years past this year for sure. First year head coach Shaheen Holloway coming in. Xavier again looked like there were points where they were going to pull away in the second half, but just like has happened at different times and at the end of games this year, look at UC, look at some of these other games. Xavier couldn't put them away, but they still won. Seton Hall got a great look at the buzzer. I thought Shaheen Holloway drew up a great play at the end of the game to make sure that Xavier couldn't get that foul off if Xavier was trying to foul up three, got it down into the corner, got a good look for three to tie the game from the corner, just didn't fall. Xavier wins by three. Uh, Rick, let's talk about this Seton Hall game and how much you feel like this win over the Pirates means to this team and this program for Xavier, given that recent history. Well, they clearly bought into that mind game that Sean Miller was playing with them, bringing it up as a talking point and trying to use it for motivation. You could tell listening to Zach Fremantle and the other guys that this was something that mattered to them. And, and they had bought into that narrative that it, they needed to defend the home floor. And that's something that Sean Miller talks about a lot. He really brings up the crowd, always thank the fans and not, not saying other coaches haven't, but he just really seems to make a, a big point out of it and, and seems to really care about that home court advantage and, and make it a big deal. So I think that's been good, but I have a question for you, Paul, this game, Mo Egger asked me, you know, was this game closer than it should have been? And I said, yes, I think it was. And for the reasons that you just listed, Xavier kind of struggled to put them away. Do you see that as a positive or a negative? That Xavier, Xavier that that Xavier was able to pull it out just just the way it played out did you see that as a positive or a negative overall what was your kind of general take I I I was starting to think with the way it just felt to me like something was off and then hearing after the game that Colby Jones had the flu and he was throwing up at halftime and it, it just felt like something was off Jack Nunji didn't have a great game Sule Boone didn't have a great game Xavier's offense it's it's wild to say they only scored 73 points but just the way the game played out and the way they won the game, I take it as a positive. Now, I'm more of a, a glass half full guy, as anybody listening to this probably knows already. I, I, I try to find the positives in these kinds of things anyway. I didn't get concerned in this game for Xavier. I don't, I don't know why this is, but I didn't get concerned that Xavier was going to lose the game until there were, and I don't even want to say that they were going to lose the game, but until there was... 15 seconds left and Seton Hall had the ball down one and you're thinking, uh oh, they're going to have a shot to win the game here. 
up until that point, the entire game, I kept thinking to myself, I, I was never thinking, oh, Xavier's going to lose this. I just kept feeling like Xavier had the upper hand, the better talent. And then in the end, they found a way to win. And to me, when you put on a performance like that at home, when clearly we, we know that Colby Jones was sick, but maybe the other guys were too. We have no idea. But they, they look kind of worn down. They look tired. They look like they could use an eight day layoff before playing at St. John's next week. And to me, I take it as a positive that they were able to grind it out and win a game like this at home. Were there negatives that they couldn't put their foot on the gas with about five minutes left when it looked like they should have? Yes, that was concerning to me because that started to become a trend in these closer games, just like in Cincinnati, you know, we saw them do it against West Virginia. They closed the game strong, but there have been a couple of times this year to me where it feels like, all right, let, let's close this thing out. Let's, let's really put the game away. Um, but just to be able to find out those things later and get a full grasp on the story of the game for Xavier to win it. I'll take that as a positive. So it was a flawed performance and I'm not trying to suggest it wasn't in any way. I, I, would agree that, you know, anyone who's going to point out there were a lot of missteps defensively and times where they couldn't get stops when they needed them. Overall, defensively, I don't think you can argue with the performance. They held them under a point per possession. It, you know, they, they, they did a good enough job on that. end. it was really more that they weren't the same team offensively that they've been for most of the season. They, you know, five of 20 from three only shot 25%. And, and quite honestly, 23 point attempts is more than they've been taking in most games. So there were some things that the, the turnovers, obviously having 14 turnovers in this game wasn't ideal. The, the one thing I will say, I'm sorry to cut you off. The no, one thing you'll say, and, and, and you just reminded me of this. The other, you talk about the turnovers. They also, they also shot five for 20 from three, right? The, the, the shots weren't falling. And to be able to see Xavier win a game where you're not making 10 or 11 threes, where you've turned the ball over and yeah, Seton Hall isn't UConn. They're not, you know, they're not what we thought Creighton was going to be before the year. They're not the typical Villanova team, but they're a, a Big East tough team that's coming in here and, and giving you a run for your money in your home floor. And when things didn't go right, it was nice to see him buckle down and, and, and get a win. But go ahead. No, and, and that's kind of where I'm going with this. Obviously, in this game, they had to win in a different style because they didn't play as well offensively. And the defense wasn't great by any stretch of the imagination, because Seton Hall is in a really dynamic team. They don't have great individual talents on the offensive end. Uh, I, I think Shaheen Holloway runs a really good offense. He runs some interesting stuff, and their just general system that they run is, is, is pretty cool. But where I was going was, what is one of the things that we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years, especially when this team has gotten into big play, Big East play? They struggled to win those close games and those games where a team came back on them or they couldn't put them away at the end. Those didn't turn into close calls games that were closer than they should have been. Those turned into losses for them over the last few seasons. This didn't turn into a loss. And you just said you weren't even really worried until that final possession that Xavier was ever going to lose this game. And I think that's kind of the point right now. Is If this team can continue to win close games like this, it's not always going to be pre pretty in the Big East. It's not always going to be pretty when you have a defense that's 80th in efficiency. <laughs> but if you can find ways to win these close games and hold off these teams that are making those comebacks, especially when you're at home, which you haven't been able to do against Seton Hall for years now, it's going to make a big difference. This is how you have a 
good season. This is how you make the NCAA tournament, winning games like those and not letting them slip away. So while there were plenty of things to nitpick and plenty of reasons to be concerned about the future and talk about things they need to get better about, my overall takeaway after watching that game was it's, it's a pretty good win for this team. That's that's the kind of thing you want to see out of this group because that's where they've struggled in years past. Just putting a game like that away when it's on the brink, they'd let it snowball all the way downhill. And this time they didn't. They put a stop to it at a certain point and they won the game. Yeah, I'm with you. I was standing right behind the, the Seton Hall. I always stand right next to the visiting bench, right behind the basket that the visiting team shoots to in the second half. And standing there and watching the way that Xavier was communicating uh, on the defensive end there to close out the game, I, I thought it was really interesting. There was a couple of sequences where, where Sule really tried to take control, take command, take charge, just communicating with the guys, even on out-of-bounds plays, whatever it was, and just being able to be a few feet away and see how the guys were interacting and seeing Sule and and how how much – he was how much effort he was putting in, how how much he cared. And I'm not trying to say that any of these guys don't care. That's not my point. My point is seeing that fire and seeing the look on his face and that competitive look on his face. It's not an indictment on anybody else. I'm just pointing out that it's such a different angle to be able to see it from five, 10 feet away right there and, and see that fire. And then that's where I kind of kept thinking to myself, they're just going to figure this out. I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know if it's going to be close in the end and it ended up being close. But they're just going to figure this out. And they did. And and to your point, yes, it's a quad three win right now. It could move up to a quad two game. Probably, I don't want to say probably will. But, you know, right now, Seton Hall, uh, they're sitting at 93rd uh, in the net rankings. But that's got a long way to go to figure itself out. It's quad three right now. could easily move up into the two range. Um, but I, I just think, to your point, Rick, that this is a game that Xavier continues to prove where if you can win a close game, those types of things will pay off down the road in March when you can remember those the, the way that those games played out. Um, but two very different games. You have Georgetown where you score over 100 points and, you, and your offense looks fantastic. Then you come back a few days later, you only score 73. What's the difference there? Was it just that Colby Jones was sick and Sule had an off night and Jack's just didn't get going a credit to Zach Fremantle. He had a great game, picked up the slack. I thought Zach played very well. Uh, but w w was there something that stood out between the two? But yeah, I mean, Seton Hall is a much tougher, more disciplined team than Georgetown is. And their length and athleticism, especially on the perimeter, is, is built to play defense. They, they are a legit defensive team. If you look at their efficiency numbers, they're 20th in the country. And defensive efficiency. Now, offensively, like I said, they just don't have enough firepower at the top end. They have some good role guys that would be solid, like number two and number three options maybe for other teams, but they don't really have a great go-to option or guys that can carry you often enough on, on every given night. They're 155th in offensive efficiency. So that's what you really saw is a better coach team, a team that's more disciplined, a team that's tougher, and a team that's more built to play good defense. And that gave Xavier some trouble. Um, but I would like to say I'd like to feel as poorly as Colby Jones did on this <laughs> night. If you if you can put up 16 points and eight rebounds and six assists and three blocks and a steal and one turnover and, oh, yeah, sealed the game with a fantastic defensive stop individually where you have to man up and guard a guy and, and just shuffle with him side to side, moving with them, not drawing the foul, all of that stuff. I'd like to feel that poorly one time. And play, thir and play 36 minutes. 
Right. I mean, yep. Sean, Sean, Sean time. Yeah, Sean laughed after the game in the post-game press conference. He was laughing, going, I know I I didn't even give him a break. I probably pushed him harder than I sh- I should have, playing him 36 minutes. And he goes, I even thought that he was going to throw up on the court at one point, the way he was kind of wobbling around, that the, thought maybe he was going to be sick during the game. And he still was able to push through it. You would have never known that he was no, sick. He was unbelievable. He, he played. Yeah. He played great. Uh, Zach Freeman. It was one of his best games. He was. He was really good. And I didn't think he was nearly as bad defensively as he's been in the past. I thought he really played hard on both ends of the floor. And then again, just what I brought up talking about the offense and, and referring to that Georgetown game. You look at Sule Boom and Colby Jones. Thirteen assists, three turnovers. If your top playmakers are playing that way, you're going to win nearly every game that you're in. It's just such an important thing, and those two guys are doing it at such a high level. You know, the other thing I will say, too, and somebody asked me about this with the other day about Xavier and the way they were playing and how well the offense was playing, and I said, you know what? Even if Xavier falters at some points here over the course of the season, whether it's against UConn or, or any of these teams, I would much, much rather Xavier lose a game 85-80 to 80 than lose a game 60 to 55 where at least it's a fun game it's aesthetically pleasing you're scoring a lot of points it's back and forth it's competitive then the grinded out slog slow no fun and oh by the way you spent two hours watching this and they lost a hundred percent it's way more fun to watch and it feels like it gives you a chance in any given game when you're a team that can't score and you're just trying to hope everyone you're going to drag everyone else down into that rock fight and keep them in the 50s or 60s. Almost any time you play a talented team, you feel like you have no shot because you know they're going to score in the 70s on you. And that's just that's not a fun style to to be a part of or be a fan of. So this this Xavier group, if you look at the games they've played so far this year, I tweeted something to this effect, and then everyone who you know was mad because the game was closer than it was. It was like, oh, that defense sucks. It's not fun for me to watch when they have these close outcomes. It's like, guys, relax and enjoy what you're watching. These have been some pretty entertaining basketball games. Well, it's like the same thing with the Bengals. When the Bengals go down 10 nothing and then 17 nothing in the first quarter, and I check all the mentions, and it says to fire Zach Taylor, and then they win by you know, 11, and they scored 34 unanswered points, and you're thinking, oh, wait, no, this, this Bengals team is a whole lot of fun to watch. You know, it's the same... But uh, the one thing I want to ask, and we may have already talked about this on this podcast, but I'll be honest, between this and everything else we've done, I kind of remember, I kind of forget what we talk about on the air and, and off the air. So if we've already talked about this, we can move on. But I brought up to you at one point, this team compared to the Trayvon Blewett and JP McCurit teams, where it felt like at times they would get up by a lot, they'd score a million points, and then they'd almost get bored and have to remember, oh, wait, we have to. We have, wait, hold on a second, guys. We have to actually win this game. You pointed out to me, well, yeah, but those teams could actually lock up and defend at times when they had to, when they really needed to, and we're still waiting to see if this team can do that. Uh, how much of a similarity do you see between that and this Xavier team where sometimes this team has built those leads and then you have to remember, oh, wait, we have to win this game? Yeah, again, I just don't – one, this team doesn't quite have that same firepower of that other Xavier team. I mean, you're still talking about Trayvon Blewett being yeah, the team. Yeah, so sure, but it, I'm just talking about the offense in general. Sure, I, and it's a good point to make, but there are some differences because that team could go on like a 21-0 run on you pretty yeah. quickly. And this team is really good offensively, 
I don't know if they're they have that same level of firepower and spurt ability. Also, like I said, that that team defensively at times had shown that they could get stops when it mattered. This team, the Seton Hall game, they did that a little bit, and Colby certainly did at the end there. But I, I still need to see it against some teams with better offensive players, I think. Seton sure. Hall just doesn't have those types of guys on the offensive end. It's a little bit easier to guard a team when they don't have great individual talents. And and you saw, like, Georgetown had three guys that, that gave Xavier trouble. Seton Hall just didn't really have that same level of, of talent, even though they're a better team overall. Sure. Um, okay. We have not talked about him yet. Jerome Hunter, Rick, we had, we got to talk about Jerome Hunter because he had probably his best game in a Xavier uniform the other night against Seton Hall. He performed at a high level. He, he filled his role. Well, he got the job done 11 points, four or five from the floor, made a few free throws, five rebounds, a couple of assists, had a steal. Jerome Hunter it seems like he's turned a corner. Well, I did that spaces the other night after the Georgetown game, and there are a couple of guys who had played really well, and Jerome had a role in that game. It was a fairly small role, but he had a role in that game, and he had done well, and it really turned into over an hour's worth of fans praising Jerome Hunter. They were just so excited, and I think it's because of the difference you've seen from what he was last year, which quite honestly, he became the guy that a lot of people were blaming for last year's issues and the style of play that everyone was getting frustrated by. And this year, he is completely bought into changing his style of play and what he was asked to do. And on paper, if someone just tells you, hey, we're going to change your role and you're not going to be allowed to shoot anymore, basically, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun necessarily. But if you buy in and you start doing the things that you are successful at, all of a sudden you start building some confidence in those things because you're having a little bit of success and you're getting praised off the court and the coaches are getting excited by what you're doing and pointing it out in film room. All of a sudden now Jerome's playing with some confidence and you're seeing him do a few more things, even on the offensive end to where it's like, he's, he's not only becoming a guy that you can put in there for a few minutes and not worry about having a giant drop off or having one of those moments where you're like, Oh man, he just killed us right there but he's actually given you a little bit of a boost at times and sometimes given you better matchups on the defensive end too. He's becoming a valuable piece for this team and they need something off the bench because right now he's really all they've got in terms of uh, bench depth. Yeah. Between Jerome Hunter and Desmond Claude, those were the only two players that came off the bench and played more than one minute. Cesar Edwards played one minute, got a rebound, also turned the ball over against Seton Hall. Uh, but Desmond Claude played, play, Oh, excuse me. Des Claude, holy cow, I promise I'm not drinking anything but my Skyline Mountain Dew here. Uh, Des Claude played 15 minutes. Uh, Jerome Hunter played seven. Rick, what am I doing here, man? Slow Uh, down, Paulie. Relax. Good Lord. Des played 15 minutes. Jerome played 17 minutes. That was your bench production the other night. Uh, And let's be honest. Desmond Claude has not been giving them a lot. He's been struggling. And in this game, it's not like he's not playing hard. He's not trying. And sometimes he helps them defensively, but he just hasn't quite figured it out yet. He has a few moments here and there, but overall it's been more negative plays, I think, than positive ones. Is there something that you can see when he's playing, Rick, that just seems off or that he's not getting it yet? Because physically it seems like he's there, but he's just not getting it. Well, I, I think it's you always hear the game's too fast for a guy. 
And like physically, that doesn't make any sense for Desmond Claude, right? He's a great athlete. He's so fast end to end, but he's not playing at full speed hardly at all right now. And I think that's because there's too much processing going on and thinking probably about what he's supposed to be doing. And he's not playing at full speed while he's going up against fifth and sixth year guys that are playing at full speed. And it's given him some trouble. I think he has to get to the point where the game starts slowing down for him. It's there's been a few times where I've thought, okay, here it is. It's starting. The light bulb starting to go off for him and and he's going to start getting it. And then you see him the next game and he struggles again. So it's freshman inconsistency. It's, It's nothing surprising to see, but in a year where there's just real, really no depth on this roster, they could really use him turning that corner and getting it going. Yeah. Uh, but to Jerome Hunter's credit to be the sixth man and come off the bench and play as well as he has, at least gives you something off the bench. Cause you can't play five guys. You, you got to have somebody there to contribute. And right now, Jerome, even if it's just in the 17 minutes is able to do that pretty effectively, but Xavier just, they got to get something off the bench. They got to get some kind of a consistency because six deep is going to be real tough by the end of the year. Well, I mean, I think they're going to keep playing Desmond Claude. They don't have a choice. You got to have at least one perimeter sub, just like you're having one front court sub right now, but you'd like to be a little deeper than that. The problem is Paul, who right now do you trust to step up over the rest of the year outside of Desmond Claude? Cause I think he could get better and start providing more, but outside of the top seven, is there one more guy that you think has a legitimate probable chance to be a factor for this team down the stretch? No, cause it's not, Cesar Edwards. It's not Deontay Miles. It's not Cam Kraft. So, no. Yeah, I mean, if we're being honest about that group, I think I'm going Cam Kraft is the best chance if, like, something just goes off for him and he starts hitting threes like crazy and you can bring him up. But, like, he hasn't shown that to this point. He hasn't had that level of confidence on the offensive end. And and right now he's struggling just to even find his way onto the court. So, He's just seemed out of place when he's gotten onto the court a few times this year. It seems like he's still trying to find himself to me. Definitely. I just haven't seen him play with the. He's not the same level of player at all to me right now because he doesn't have confidence. And yeah. he's always been a super confident player. It's part of what makes him who he is. It's hard to watch him out there playing offensively without playing with that same level of confidence. And part of it's just you know, he's a guy who's used to being a volume shooter he can't be a volume shooter on this team. He has to fit in and play within a role and and be efficient and take advantage of his opportunities. I think he's just trying to get in where he fits in and and find those opportunities. Sure. Um, Rick, anything more on these last couple of games before I want to look forward here toward next week, because we won't record again before St. John's. So um, I know you had some notes on Seton Hall and Georgetown. So I want to give you the chance if there was anything we didn't hit on or or share to. No, not really. I think, I think that was pretty much it. I mean, that St. John's game is going to be just ridiculous. What do you think the over is going to be for that game, the over-under? Oh, it's got to be in the 160s, right? Uh, 240, maybe? Yeah, it's got to be in the... So if if you don't know, St. John's plays at the fastest pace in the entire country on the offensive end. And to this point, we haven't seen Xavier want to slow it down at all when teams want to run with them. So we could see, like legitimately an 80 something possession game i don't think that's out of the question yeah well right now ken palm has the final score at 82 81 xavier i think that's a bit conservative personally yeah this is a game that could easily get into the 90s i think so too i mean and he has it at a prediction of 77 possessions which is fair but would you be surprised if it got to 82 well southeastern louisiana played at 81 and that's and Morgan State played at 81. Xavier's twice gotten into the 80s. 
Why not? Yeah. Back and forth. This St. John, we've seen how St. John's in it on a on a wacky Wednesday night at Carnesecca at nine o'clock. I got no idea what's coming. This game isn't getting talked about enough. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> no. I am looking forward to this game. Circle it. It's going to be fun. And it's the mic'd up game. Mike Anderson oh, and Seton right. Hall. I totally just blanked on that. That's going to be fascinating with Sean on the mic'd up. I'm surprised so I, he agreed to this. So I uh, I don't know how much I want to get into all this with the mic'd up thing, but I have heard a lot about the whole behind the scenes of what has gone on with this. And this just spill the beans, Paul. Let's go. Well, well I, no one's listening. <laughs> I, I just to your point, I'm I was very surprised to hear that Sean um, agreed to it just because it this never seems like something that sh- Sean would do. Right. But we've seen him agree to things that he hasn't done before. If anybody read that piece from Matt Norlander, where Norlander went behind the scenes and did that whole thing out in Portland. Good point. Norland- Norlander talked on his podcast on uh, college basketball that he said, hey, look, this was something that I would have never been able to get Sean to do a couple of years ago, but now he's willing to do it. He's willing to open up. And I think to Sean's credit, he recognizes that these are the types of things that he needs to be doing right now, that he needs to be more open. He's been very open and honest and gracious with doing a lot of these availabilities and things like that. And uh, I know that this is something that's been in the works for a long time. It took a lot of convincing. Um, I know that they were very much uh, emphasizing that Sean didn't back out of this. Um, And he, to his credit, has not backed out. It's full go. I first heard about it a couple of months ago and when it was really in the works and then it got leaked or I don't want to say leaked. They started publicizing it last week. And, and um, I, I've had conversations about what it's going to look like. And if you've watched any all access games like this before, it's going to be pretty much identical where the coaches will have microphones. There will be broadcasters. Uh, if, If you haven't seen one of these before, I think Xavier did one. I think Travis was part of one before. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure I wouldn't swear on that, but I think Travis, I think that's was, right. Do you do one maybe with McDermott? I don't remember who it was against, but I'm pretty sure Travis did one of these before. Um, but the coaches wear microphones. They do the entire game. Cameras go into the locker rooms at halftime. Um, and, and what, basically what they do is if you haven't seen it, they do a double box on the screen. The coaches will be, it's almost like a zoom call where you have the game in the main portion of the screen, but you'll also see the coaches there with a camera following them through the whole game. Um, It's not a broadcast that you want to listen to every single game. Like you don't want this all the time because there's a lot of moving pieces and the broadcasters are there trying to facilitate everything. You still have a play-by-play guy. You still have an analyst, Um, but it's a really, really, cool thing for the fans to be able to see this behind the scenes type of action, what the coaches say Uh, it's, it's on a little bit of a delay. So if you're watching with your kids, you don't have to worry about any, well, I don't want to say that because maybe the audio guy falls asleep at the chair, but they, they do do it on a delay. So you'll hear a lot of the, the, the sound going off. So if you hear just blank sound for a minute, your TV's not broken. It's just them bleeping out the sound if, if the coaches are swearing or anything like that but um to me as somebody as somebody in the broadcasting space i love hearing the behind the scenes and all this with how they've been setting this up and the things they've tested to be able to get to this point for this game i'm very excited to watch it i think the game itself will be great with saint john's and xavier 
that's a fun one. And on top of that, hearing Sean Miller from tip to finish completely mic'd up will also be a great experience for everybody. That's a nine o'clock game. So maybe we do like a pregame spaces. Postgame spaces might be too late for everyone. But that feels like a spaces game of some sort. That's going to be a fun one. Everybody, Rick, it's it's Christmas week. Is anybody? Oh, is yeah. Any, good point. We'll, yeah, we're maybe doing we'll a post, do a postgame spaces. Postgame spaces. That's post-game going to be a fun spaces. game. The mic'd up thing will be interesting. Sean Miller, as people will say, is allergic to BS. He is just very straightforward when he talks to his players, when he talks to media, whatever. He's just not a guy who blows a lot of smoke or uses cliches or anything like that. He's just kind of very, very direct with the way he talks to you. I'm confident enough in my own skin to admit this. What is everybody talking about on the message board with his coughing? Did I miss something? You've never heard him cough? No, I have no idea what everybody's talking about. Is this some sort of inside joke that I've missed? No, it's not an inside. I mean, it's an inside joke only in the sense that he does like one little cough all the time. It's never it's never like a he's sick or he has like some deep phlegm in his chest or anything. It's always like in between a sentence, he'll just give one little. <laughs> he does it when he's coaching. He'll do it in press conferences occasionally. Really? Yeah, I've never know. I've, and, I've and never noticed that. It's I didn't notice it the first time he was here, but he, it goes all the way back to there. He's just been doing it nonstop since I don't know, like two thousand and four or something. I don't know what the deal is. I don't. Maybe huh. it's something we should ask about in press conferences, but I feel like maybe it's a little inappropriate. I don't know where it ranks on the level of how have you stopped sweating through your like gray quarter zips? Oh, you know, it's got to well, be an undershirt. Thompson tees. I think he's using Thompson tees. He didn't get like a special deodorant set up or something could be but if you're a real sweater which it would appear he was based on that the game you know the game that we all know about (laughs) the game yeah yeah the the see-through shirt i'm a big time sweater i just no matter what type of clinical strength deodorant or whatever that you get it's just not enough to like stop you from sweating during a game like that where you're moving around and screaming and gesturing and stuff i don't i don't see i mean sean miller plays defense while he's on the sidelines over there so I don't know that, you know, just clinical strength deodorant or something could stop his sweat. I think it's got to be an undershirt system. Speaking of playing defense, I know we've done a podcast since then, but did you see that video of the Southern coach from a couple of weeks ago? Legit straight up being the sixth man in the corner of the in the corner of the court at Cintas. It, it was incredible. Sean Woods. And then uh, their, their next game was at Youngstown State. They, you know, state went up there right after they played Xavier, I guess. And. He got thrown out of that game for two technicals and all their players were wanting to fight the Youngstown state players after they lost at the end of the game. And then wanted to start fighting like the Youngstown state fans, fortunately, like nothing happened. There was no, no physical altercations at all, but it was just like jawing and gesturing and like <laughs> tough guy stuff. And someone tweeted at me, you know, if you're going to pick a fight with any like city in the state of Ohio, Youngstown's the wrong city to, <laughs> to fight funny, I didn't know that. Oh, that's funny. Um, all right, well, let's stay on the Sean Miller topic eh, because we have not podcasted, like I said, since the IARP ruling. The What did the ruling say? Um, we, we talked a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago, you and I, when we first heard about it. And I don't want to say um, I don't want to say that I expected this because I did think that Sean would get two games. Uh, I'll be transparent. People were asking me, what What do you think? How many, what's your prediction? I, I said two, but as somebody that has followed the IARP and the NCAA and all of this 
I have followed everything about as closely as I can follow it up until my brain can't handle all the legal jargon. I was not surprised at all that he did not get a game. I thought he would get two, and then maybe I'm contradicting myself, but just the way they had ruled already, I was not surprised at all that he didn't get any kind of a suspension. Now, he didn't get off without any penalty. He did get, fifth. I think it was 50 wins removed uh, from his coaching ledger at Arizona because Raleigh Alkins was deemed retroactively ineligible, which removes 50 wins from Sean's coaching record. But in the grand scheme of things, there was no suspension, no on-court punishment, no program punishment to Xavier. Obviously, that would have gone to Arizona. Um, But I thought there were a couple of points that I thought were very interesting from the IARP. One of them was that they said that they took into account Arizona's self-imposed postseason ban and we don't need to go down the road of Arizona but just as it relates to the case I thought that was interesting because Arizona self-imposed that year postseason ban a couple of seasons ago and now the IARP said that they took into account that they didn't want to punish players that weren't a part of the problem and people have complained for so long about the NCAA taking years and years and years and years to accomplish you know adjudicating a uh, some sort of a punishment and then all of a sudden the players that get punished were in eighth grade or freshmen in high school weren't a part of the problem that didn't happen and that the ncaa and the iarp were hoping that as punishments go forward that that is something that they will take into account now the iarp is going to rule on kansas and on lsu next year and then that committee is done that committee was formed to rule on these cases once Kansas and LSU are done, that committee is over. And uh, I, I just, I still go back to what I said that I thought the way that it was handled was as clear as it had been for the first two for Louisville and for Memphis. Neither one of them really got all that big of a punishment from the IARP. You could argue that time served was bad enough for Louisville, where their program has basically been under all of this scrutiny that can't recruit very well, haven't done a whole lot, haven't had a lot of postseason success. They've Just two words is all you need, Kenny Payne. They, yeah. They've already been punished enough. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but but as far as all that goes, Sean does not get suspended. So, Rick, what is your take on all of that? Well, first of all, a couple things here. Sean, what Sean was originally charged with was lack of institutional control, not promoting an environment of compliance. So that was as a result of all the info they had on Book Richardson, basically accepting bribes. And then there was also the academic fraud where the one of the assistants had changed a transcript like you talked about. So, Sean, it was basically said that he should have known what was going on and he didn't promote uh, environment of compliance when they had the hearing. It came out in this ruling that Sean and Arizona were able to provide a long list of things that he had done to promote exactly what they were accusing him of not doing, which was he had like a book that had all types of information about compliance stuff in it. He had told he had meetings constantly with the compliance office and talked to his coaches about how they are to report anything to compliance, all of these things. I mean, it's listed in the ruling if you want to read them offline by line. 
but he did all these different things. And when you're talking about a situation like this, how much can you do as a head coach? Like, yes, they've established this rule that you're supposed to be responsible for anything that your assistant coaches are doing, basically. But the FBI went in and investigated all this and decided that Sean Miller had no knowledge of this, had nothing to do with any of the money being exchanged. The players that were in question, guys like DeAndre Ayton, who have been dragged through the mud and talked about taking $100,000 payments and stuff like that through faulty ESPN reports, and even some some wiretap conversations that Book Richardson had with Christian Dawkins talking about playing players that, according to the FBI, has never happened. They cleared Sean Miller and these players of being involved with any of this stuff. That's the FBI, not the IARP. The FBI that had wiretaps and did a full investigation on this and wanted to nail somebody that was higher up like a Sean Miller because they had invested a lot of time and a lot of tax dollars into an into this investigation thinking that they were going to nail someone big. They weren't able to do that. They came away with nothing. They cleared Sean Miller, they cleared these players, and the IARP did exactly the same thing. They cleared Sean Miller of any wrongdoing. So that I think that's important to note that it it wasn't like they just said, "Oh, well, you're guilty, but we're not going to give you a strict punishment because we haven't given these other teams and it's been too long." No, they said Sean Miller is cleared of any wrongdoing. They threw out that level one violation. I think that's important to note of where this all, where the ruling came down on Sean Miller and his involvement in this, and also backed up by an FBI investigation saying that he had no knowledge of it. He had no money. And by the way, they proved that the money book Richardson had taken as bribes had never gone anywhere else. It was just book Richardson talking to these people, telling them stuff they wanted to hear, and that's what they believe those wiretap conversations were. Him talking to Christian Dawkins, talking about these deals, saying why they might need different money because he was just going to take it, keep it for himself as basically a yearly bonus. And the way I understood it was that Book Richardson was given this 10-year show cause penalty essentially because he didn't comply with the investigation. I was told he didn't show up to his hearings even. Like the hearing Sean had okay, in August, yeah. I was told Book Richardson didn't show up for any of that. Well, meanwhile, Sean had all this information, had all the documents laying out how he went about trying to promote compliance amongst his assistant coaches while he was at Arizona. And Arizona spoke on his behalf, saying the same thing, saying that he did all the things that he says he did, and he was trying to do so. And as a result, I think that's exactly why you're off. Now, a lot of people are going to say, okay, yeah, but didn't he know or didn't he at least tell his assistant coaches to go get him players? You can, you're going to think whatever you want to think in these types of situations. But the evidence we have based on an FBI investigation, which would seem to be a pretty extreme level of scrutiny to me, suggests that Sean Miller didn't know anything about what these investigations were about. And to your point, Rick, I think you made a great point a couple of minutes ago. The FBI is not going to invest their time, energy, financial resources in all of this if they don't think that they can get somebody significant enough to make headlines and make news. And they weren't able to do that. Make no mistake about it. The FBI looked very, very dumb. And it was very embarrassing for them to come out with the results of these investigations. This is not what they wanted. They thought they were going to be nailing 
high-level college basketball coaches and millionaires that would generate a big buzz in the media. That's not what they got. So when you think back to where all of this started, and I remember the day that it all broke and trying to remember all of these details and all of these things, and you look at the media and the news stories that broke that day and all these college basketball personalities that were saying, oh, is this the end of Sean Miller? Is he ever going to coach again? Is he going to get fired on the spot? Is he going to, what's going to happen to Sean Miller? He ends up coaching a couple of more years at Arizona. Then he eventually does get let go. Now he comes back to Xavier. But when you think back to that original story, Rick, and the thread that was laid out on Twitter that I had quote tweeted that laid all of this out chronologically, um, it's pretty amazing how wrong the original reporting of the story was. You're talking about the story that broke from ESPN, ESPN. and Mark Schleyball, where he said yeah. that it was that Sean Miller was on FBI wiretaps talking about paying DeAndre Ayton $100,000, which it's been proven now by multiple people and including an FBI investigation that that never happened. Sean Miller, the assistants, none of them were wiretapped at the time of DeAndre Ayton's recruitment. He was already at Arizona when they were being wiretapped, so they wouldn't have caught him talking about paying him ahead of time during that recruitment. That never happened. And it's basically been proven that Mark Schleybaugh just made that up. And based on the way ESPN has handled Mark Schleybaugh, which is they've disappeared him from the face of the earth and you've never heard from him again, tells you all you need to know. The amazing thing to me is that ESPN has never done any type of retraction or clarified this or any, I mean, there, there have been minor changes that they've made in different ways. They've gone about trying to smooth it over and yeah. make it look better and kind of cover up their reporting, but they've never come out and said like, Hey, we were wrong and tried to give it any anywhere near the same type of publicity that they gave the original story, which like you said, had Jay Billis and Dick Vitale and all these talking heads on TV that night as they're, you know, doing the studio work before games started and at halftime of games talking about Sean Miller, DeAndre Ayton, and other people within this Arizona program, which they've really drugged them through the mud and, I mean, made life pretty rough on these people. You think about the ripple effects that that story and this whole situation had on some of these people's lives. It's it's incredible. And I, I know to some extent it's like a weird situation to be talking about this on a Xavier podcast because Xavier fans are kind of like, ah. Uh, Kind of not too mad about the way it all played out in the end because we got Sean Miller back, but uh, it's really pretty messed up and pretty nuts the way ESPN went about reporting that story. And if you want the full background, all all the really breakdown stuff like that, there's tons of tedious sentence by sentence information on the message board at musketeerreport.com that you can read through all of this. And we've had people from the Arizona site in on the message board posting all the stuff that they've been uh, uh, reporting since all this stuff started way back when, uh, five or six years ago now. So uh, definitely some good stuff on the message board right now if you want to dive deeper into the IARP stuff. Yeah, who does Xavier fans thank more for getting Sean Miller back to Xavier, Seamus Lukosius or Mark Schleybaugh? That's a good question. Probably Mark Schleybaugh, right? Probably you'd have to think so. Because that's the Sean Miller piece. That. <laughs> You know, you, you can have the initial piece of moving on, but it's hard to hard to guarantee that you're going to get Sean Miller out of it. You know, that's true. Very true, Rick. Uh, so as it relates to Xavier, what's the impact on this ruling for Xavier, Rick? This 
basically clears him of everything as far as recruiting goes. He doesn't have to worry about anything that he can fully communicate with recruits that, hey, I'm clear, I'm good. You don't have to worry about anything with the program or myself moving forward. What's the impact? Well, first of all, just as it relates to this team right now, you're not going to lose your coach for a couple of games just as you're getting into Big East play. And this team is playing pretty well. They have some momentum, but I don't think they necessarily want to lose Sean Miller right now. That being said, Adam Cohen's been around since Sean Miller got here basically to this offseason. He's been around all the guys. He's a highly qualified basketball mind and knows what he's doing. So I don't know that he was like incapable of leading this team for two games or or three or four games if it came down to that. I think he would have been fine, but it's better to not have to go through that, not have the distraction or the shakeup. Xavier was just really quickly able to move on. They'd probably appreciate it if we'd stop talking about it on this podcast right now, to be quite honest. But you saw they sent out a quick release and we're like, we're good. We're moving on. Let's forget about it. I don't think you're going to see them do anything more than that. I, I wouldn't think. I think that was kind of their whole plan was to move on. Now, I did talk to some of the national recruiting analysts at 24-7. I did a story on this on the website, just a kind of a quick hit with some extended quotes from those guys talking about what type of impact they believe it's going to have from a recruiting perspective. And the gist of it, their quotes were a little bit different, but mostly kind of the, the same thought process, which is that it's going to be a minor bump potentially, or maybe just open up a few more doors that we're going to read just the ESPN report and feel like there was a reason not to consider Sean Miller's program. It eliminates any of that type of feeling and also any coaches that might want to try to use it negatively to recruit against him and say, oh, he could get a show cause or he could be in trouble or he was doing this or he was doing that. It's He was cleared of everything. And that's what Xavier can point to. I think that it takes any of those types of things away. But as both of the national analysts already pointed out to me, Xavier has a pretty good incoming 2023 class while this was hanging over Sean Miller's head. So I don't know that it was impacting them too much. Did you get the feeling that this is what Xavier was expecting going into it? I did. And and I, I can probably add a little more detail. I'd probably save it for the message board, but they were prepared for multiple scenarios. They brought in some help. They got ready for it. And they were prepared for multiple scenarios here from this case, which was best case scenario, absolutely no suspension, and he's cleared of any wrongdoing. And they were prepared for a worst case scenario, which was a one-year show cause or more. So, um, yeah, we can get into maybe more of that on the message board about what the the kind of details were there. But there was definitely a lot of thought that went into it. But I know after the rulings happened in August, there was a lot of positivity, especially with the way at least from what I was told, that Arizona spoke on Sean's behalf and he had so much evidence in his favor that there was a good feeling that this was going to be a very minimal punishment or they might completely throw it out, which is what they did. This is a moot point now, but I'm just curious for myself because I don't know how all of this works and the ins and outs of it. If he had gotten, say, a one-year show cause, would that have been implemented immediately right away and he wouldn't have been able to coach until whatever it was, December 15th next year? Or is that like it ends you know, it starts next season and he's out for a year. How does that work? My understanding is it would have been immediate after, after the ruling came down. So got it. Yeah. It would okay. have been, definitely would have been a tough situation. Yeah. Cause that knocks you out for the summer that knocks you out for everything. Okay. Uh, so Xavier avoided that too. Wow. Yeah. And, and let's, I mean, that was not real. I don't think anyone thought that was a realistic no. option when it, it got no. close to this time, but you, you prepare for anything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else on that, Rick? 
No, I think that's that's really all we okay. had. I know some people wanted us to to maybe go a little bit more in depth with that, but I think most of the information there is on the message board. You can sort through it as as much as you want. I'm not sure it makes for great podcast material. Maybe it, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe there's there's room to have someone in on a spaces sometime to talk more about it or something. But uh, that's that's probably where we can leave it. Sure. Uh, let's do a quick look around the Big East here before we wrap up. We'll do another show, probably post UConn. We'll do a spaces after St. John's, uh, maybe a spaces around Connecticut. But you and I won't actually record until after the UConn game again. Um, before we get into the Big East, St. John's, UConn. Um, I think I had a St. John's win and a UConn loss in the preseason pod. Um, do we want to adjust how we had predicted things? I can't remember what I, I can't remember if I went one and one here. Oh, and two, I'm almost certain I predicted a, a loss I think at St. John's. You had a win against UConn. I remember okay, we were different. So I went on that, one and, and one. And that's loss. what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, I think I would probably switch that around now. I'd, I'd say they have yeah. a chance to win the St. John's game and, and it's more likely that they would lose the UConn game, okay. but yep. uh, they're playing well at Cintas though. That home court and advantage the- thing we talked about. And the other thing, too, is Illinois got blown out tonight. Marquette lost and uh, Arizona got blown out last night by San Francisco. So for those of you that are interested in the AP poll, there's a decent chance that this is a ranked matchup next week with UConn being at number two and Xavier being maybe in there at 25 next week uh, when when UConn comes to Synth. That's going to be I just I'm so excited for that game. I noon on new year's eve before the college football playoff games so everybody will be in the building you're not competing with anything else the rest of the day i think that is going to be an electric environment yeah two really good games coming up from an entertainment perspective it's a it's a shame that it's over as far as the yukon game goes which is might end up being the best home game the rest of the year for quality of opponent it's a shame it's over the break with students not there but do they typically get some students back by that point or is it going to be empty in that section or will they just bring like normal fans in the way that they've done it the last couple of games is they've they moved the band to the other side and they completely sold the one half of the student section to just just to fans and then the other side of the student section next to the band where the band is now is the actual student section and that's been filled the last couple of games but i don't know for this game if they're going to get more student uh, you know requests i don't i don't know i haven't talked to ticketing to know that answer yet we're still a little far away i don't know when the student requests went out um i know when i was there a few years ago they you were allowed to get like an extra ticket you could request two tickets so if you had a family member that wanted to go you could get two tickets for you and a parent or you and a friend whoever just get a second one um but hopefully if, if any students are listening to this, that, that that game will draw some students from the area back in because that'll be that'll be a fun one. Oh, yeah, I'm sure this is what will entice them to go watch a top 25 matchup and one of the best teams in the country. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, So, yeah, I, I, I would hope so. I would hope so. Uh, All right. Let's take a look around the Big East, Rick. Connecticut, uh, I know their fans are livid right now because Houston leaped them up into uh up into number one of Ken Palm, but UConn sitting at number two right now. They're undefeated 13 and 0. They play Villanova next week at home. Um UConn right now on Ken Palm favored by 14 in that game, but Villanova has been on a roll lately. 
They beat Oklahoma to snap that four-game losing streak. They beat Oklahoma and have not lost in December. They're on a five-game winning streak right now. They beat St. John's pretty handily last night. Uh, That would have been on Wednesday night. Beat St. John's by 15 at the Pavilion. St. John's was 11-1 and coming into the game, but hadn't really been... uh, They didn't really have that great win. They beat Syracuse. That was their best win to that point. But the best team that they had played was Iowa State, and they lost that game by 11. So St. John's loses their first real big test of the year. And Villanova's kind of got it rolling right now. My two dark horses coming into the year, Butler and Marquette. Marquette was looking very good. I know they dropped that last one uh, the other night against Providence, but Providence 27-1 and in their last 28 home games. They lose that one in double overtime. So that's a tough loss for Marquette, but Marquette's showing a whole lot better. They started the season 76th on Ken Palm. They're up to 27. Um, Golden Eagles look good, but the rest of the Big East – you know, it's it's not the year that it has, but it's not it's not the same Big East we've seen in years past. Well, Villanova is the most interesting story to me right no now. Doubt. They they start off two and five. They have that four game losing streak, and then, like you just said, they have now reeled off five wins in a row. And it coincided the winning streak coincided with the return of fresh or the debut of freshman Cam Whitmore. So that has made things a lot more interesting because all of a sudden they're looking. A lot more like the team we expected them to be before the season. I'm not saying they're top one or two in the Big East necessarily yet, but they look a lot more legitimate. The two wins that they have that are notable are Oklahoma and St. John's at this point. The other three are just kind of whatever games. It was Penn, Boston College, and St. Joe's, but still, it's five straight, and they had already lost a couple of questionable games prior to that against Portland and Temple. Yeah, well, and to your point, they haven't lost with Whitmore in the lineup. His first game was Oklahoma, and they've they're five and zero with him. He yeah, that's what that's what I meant when I said the winning streak yeah. coincided with his debut. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's that's been this month of December. He, they haven't lost with him. So, uh, yeah. So Villanova, I next week that one against UConn. That'll be. We'll see. I don't really know what to expect in that one. I don't. I don't know what to think about that game because UConn's on a roll. They get Villanova at home. I think UConn's going to win, but I'm definitely interested in seeing it. Can can Villanova play with them? Because if so, we're, we're in for an interesting battle at the top of the Big East. I think UConn is clearly going to be number one. But right after that, I mean, I think Xavier, Villanova, potentially Marquette, Creighton, all could be in that mix fighting at the top. Yeah, Providence right now sitting at 10 and 3. They've won five games in a row. They, like I said, just beat Marquette 103 to 98 in double overtime. They're 2 and 0 in the Big East. Um, Butler at 8 and 5. They got blown out by Creighton tonight, 78 to 56. I watched most of that game. It was never close. Creighton, they've been struggling, but they also went the last three games without Ryan Kalkbrenner. They get him back and they win by 22. They had lost the Arizona, Texas, Nebraska, BYU, Arizona State, and Marquette in a row for finally getting him back and, and beating Butler. They're one and one in the Big East now. The big, it's tough to say so early. Everybody's so out on the Big East, and yes, they're not what they have been before. Um, but I think the most concerning thing about the Big East right now is when you're looking at the quad one wins available the rest of the year. You're hoping, if you're Xavier, that things start to balance out. But right now, when you look at it, home versus Connecticut is quad one, away versus Connecticut, and then Creighton at Butler, 
and at Marquette as of right now. Yeah, well, we talked about the non-conference schedule when you know they played that home game against West Virginia and even the game at Cincinnati. If Cincinnati can find a way to, to be in the top 75, that's going to be a quad one game for them. So that was an important win to pick up the West Virginia. Hopefully they can remain a top 30 team. So they remain a quad one win. Um, but that that's going to be the big thing for this team is trying to find a couple of those quad one wins here down the stretch because they missed those opportunities early in the season against Indiana Duke and Gonzaga. Yep. Rick, anything else? I think that's plenty, Paul. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Stay warm. Hopefully if you're home from work today and you're listening to this, you're, you're staying warm and temperature is going to be some ungodly number like minus five, but it feels like minus 28 or something crazy like that. So uh, hopefully everybody's doing well out there, staying warm. Merry Christmas to everybody. And uh, uh, yeah, stay tuned for our post-game spaces, especially after St. John's. I don't know what we'll do on New Year's Eve after UConn, depending on how all that goes. Um, I know that'll be kind of a crazy day, but for sure we'll be podcasting that week after. So probably that, I would guess that Tuesday, because the Bengals play Monday night football, um, maybe that Tuesday to get one out that Tuesday night. So to sounds good. That. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy New Year and uh, look forward to next week. Should be a fun one. See you, everybody.